Coming up on Tech Nation, it's all about why and why we are so interested in why all the time. I speak with Dr. Mario Livio about his book, Why? What Makes Us Curious? Then on Tech Nation Health, we look at the absolutely helpless, newborns in trouble. For you see, 15% of newborns in the United States go immediately to intensive care. Can a rapid readout of their genetics make a difference? Dr. Stephen Kingsmore is the president and CEO of Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. While everyone is getting higher and higher hopes for driverless cars, especially worn-out soccer moms and baby boomers who suspect there will be an end to their days behind the wheel, we all need to adjust our bearings. While the technology is improving, we humans are still humans. A driver with twice the legal limit of alcohol was found sound asleep at the wheel of his Tesla, which had stopped right smack in the middle of the San Francisco Bay Bridge. No problem, he asserted. The Tesla was set to autopilot. It was the car's fault. It had stopped while in traffic and apparently needed the driver to start it up again. This and other incidents, and it's not just Tesla, show us that driverless cars haven't completely worked out the kinks, but it also points to something else. The driver has to be present, and that is problematic for any human, drunk or sober. In what situations might we find ourselves where we can be completely in our own thoughts and suddenly we're needed to physically intervene, to be prepared to act, and make quick decisions. One applicable scenario might be security guards. One reason they get up periodically and walk around the premises is to stay alert. They have to move their bodies. They engage their minds. They need to record events. They may practice incident scenarios. It's all about ensuring that they're ready for action when no action is really expected. And not just after hours on the job, but often for weeks and months at a time. They can't eat a whole pizza midway through their shift and hope to stay alert. It just can't happen. So why would you think you could share a pizza and a pitcher of beer with your buddies after work and then get in your car and have it automatically drive you home, say 30 miles away? I'd be asleep inside five minutes. But you can't be asleep even in a driverless car. You have to be alert and ready to take the wheel. The fact is, we're still human. Without technology, we haven't gotten any better at doing any number of tasks. We haven't gotten any faster. And we certainly don't seem to have any more discipline than our ancestors did. So if humans are still humans, what do we do now that our technology is bringing us cars that hurtle down the highway at 70 miles an hour without us doing a darn thing?
In addition to getting the driverless cars to work as perfectly as possible, we also need to design the driver experience so that the driver stays alert. Well, you can't have the driver get up and walk around. You can't have him play video games. You can't have him buried with his head in a novel or work on his computer. Surely someone has worked this out. Actually, it doesn't seem so. Ford found that the engineers who were testing its driverless cars kept falling asleep. Alarm bells didn't work. Flashing lights didn't work. Having a second engineer in the car didn't work. So besides figuring out how to keep a driver alert, the technology has to be able to tell if he is alert. And if not, pull over on the side and park. When he wakes up, it will too. Being human isn't easy. The technology is getting better, faster, and cheaper. But we're not. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, why we ask the question why and what science tells us about it. I speak with Dr. Mario Olivio and his book on the subject. Then on Tech Nation Health, faster reading of whole genomes is now possible for newborns in trouble. I speak with Dr. Stephen Kingsmore, the president and CEO of Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine. Dr. Mario Livio has written the book, Why? What Makes Us Curious? I asked him, how is it you got curious about curiosity? Uh, well, I've always been a, simply a very curious person myself, uh, both in my science and in other areas that I'm interested in. I was always passionate about art, about music. And at one point, I was just so curious about curiosity itself because I wanted to understand how that works. Well, I understand from your book that there's no generally accepted scientific definition of the term curiosity, which I found curious. (laughs) (laughs) It it is somewhat curious. Uh, the, The problem is that it turns out that there are many types of curiosity, and we use the same word, curiosity, for all of them, even though, you know, they may be somewhat different things. Just to give two simple examples, uh, there is a curiosity that we feel when something surprises us uh, or, you know, it, it doesn't agree with what we know or think we know. That's one type of curiosity. On the other hand, there is another curiosity which is what drives scientific research or, you know, uh, great artworks where people devote sometimes their entire life to being curious about something. And those turn out to be very different things, and we still use the same word. 
Well, you also break down, was it curious, could be emphatic? Is it empathic? No, I misspelled this. It's empathic. (laughs) How you're curious about how people feel. Not everybody is, but sometimes that's what you're curious about. Yeah, that that often happens when you read a book, you know, when you start identifying with the protagonist and you feel very empathic about them that then but you're curious about what they are thinking, you know, what they w- would like to do and things of that nature. And you lo- might look for stimulation. Stimulation is of course, you know, what curiosity is all about. I mean, there things need to stimulate your curiosity. I mean, you're you're not uh, curious without something stimulating or, or activating the mechanisms that, that are your curiosity. I want to get into the brain, the neuroscience of it. I mean, just right off the bat, you say, if you're surprised, neuroscientifically speaking, your brain believes it has to take an action. Uh, and I guess that's similar to fear. In some sense, it's similar to fear. You're right. Um, so, so one of these curiosities I, I, I just mentioned, it's called perceptual curiosity. That's the curiosity when we're surprised by something or, or when something is puzzling or ambiguous. We cannot tell, it's, is it this or that? And that puts our brain, it turns out, into a state that is an aversive state, an, an, an unpleasant state. And it activates also parts of our brain that are usually uh, associated with conflict, like when we're hungry or things like that. So that type of curiosity is a bit like an itch we we need to scratch. I was really surprised when I read that, um, you know, something surprising is unpleasant because I find things that are surprising very, uh, very exciting. You know, I really like it. Am I am I confused here? <laughs> no, I mean there are various types of surprises. Of course, there are surprises that are pleasant and ones that are not. But uh, sometimes when you're talking about being very pleasant by uh, feeling very uh, in a very pleasurable state by a surprise, uh, that's not necessarily the times when you are curious about something. I'm talking about, you know, Asian kids seeing a white person for the first time, uh, you know, which is something that they didn't even know exist. Uh, So that's the type of surprise I'm talking about. Or when you see something happening and you say, well, is it going to go that way or is it going to go that way? And if that that something can be good or bad, but if that something may be bad, for example, you know, you you are awaiting the results of some medical examination or things of that nature, then of course you are being put, uh, the the state of curiosity about the answer puts you in an unpleasant state, in an aversive state. And, And that has been confirmed both by psychological experiments and by neuroscientific experiments which showed really which parts of the brain really are activated during such times. That's a very good point. It's that these things work together. Sometimes they don't, they're not included in an experiment. One could be just psychological and the other could just be uh, neuroscientific, but sometimes you put the two together. You almost need that in the area of curiosity. You absolutely need that. And, and and indeed, this was done at least for these two types of curiosity. This one that's perceptual curiosity, which is associated with, with this unpleasantness, and the other one which has been dubbed epistemic curiosity, that's our love of knowledge. You know, this is when we want to learn. We want to know new things. 
what Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher, called lust of the mind. Um, that is usually associated with a pleasurable state. And indeed, when they did the neuroscience of that, namely looked using functional MRI in the brains of people uh, to see which parts are activated when they make them epistemically curious, they discovered that those parts are the ones that are normally associated with an anticipation of reward. A little bit like, you know, you sit in a theater, in a play you wanted to see for a long time and you're waiting for the curtain to go up or when somebody is about to give you a piece of chocolate. So those are the parts that are activated by epistemic curiosity. When we want to know something, when we want to learn new things, that's very pleasant to us and we anticipate it as a reward. We see knowledge as a reward. And layered in there as well is a measure of intensity, independent of what kind of curiosity it is. Yes, again, absolutely right. Uh, There are different types of curiosity and there are different levels of curiosity. I mean, there are some people who, you know, they see something, they became very intensely curious about this, and uh, they could launch into uh, an investigation that can last hours, days, or maybe even years. Uh, Other people, you know, are satisfied with getting a very simple answer, you know, satisfying curiosity in very simple ways. Uh, For example, uh, there is one other type of curiosity which usually is associated with um, not so intense curiosity, but sometimes is with intense curiosity, and that's specific curiosity. Suppose you cannot remember who wrote uh, The Old Man in the Sea, let's say, or who is the person who said, we're all in the gutter, but some of us are looking at, at the stars. Um, so some people, you know, they say, oh, I cannot remember that, and that's it. They they go about doing their business. Others, they just, you know, suffer from the fact that they cannot remember this, and, and they can sit there for hours or sometimes a whole day until they actually remember. Now, of course, this is where technology today helps a little bit because specific curiosity is relatively easy to satisfy using the Internet. Well, speaking of the Internet, um, it's really been a boom in looking at, for the users of the Internet, what people are curious about. It tells us a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, yes, but but it, it, it differs. You know, it's in different environments, in different places, at different times. People are curious about different things. I mean, you know, if you are... If you happen to be the the children of refugees uh, that have to cross entire countries on foot and search uh, every night for a place to sleep and search for food, uh, then you may be curious about those things uh, and not about uh, the meaning of life, let's say. Uh, If, on the other hand, you know, you you live in a place where uh, uh, there is a 24-second news cycle, then you may be curious about what's in the latest news. Um, There is another type of curiosity, which is called diversive curiosity. It's the type of thing that you see young people very often, you know, continuously checking for new text messages on on their smartphones. So, yes, in different places at different times, people can be have different levels of curiosity and can be interested in very different things. So it tells us right away that it's all over the map. 
everybody's different as to what they're curious, but what they're curious about and why they're doing it can be very, very different. Indeed. But the important point is that all people are curious, with the exception of you know people who are very severely depressed or people who have had certain types of brain injuries. Other than those, I mean, really all people are curious at some level. Now, again, they may be curious about different things, and their level of curiosity may be different, but all people are curious. You are listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Mario Livio, an astrophysicist formerly with the Hubble Space Telescope. He's written far and wide in the field of science. You may know him from his earlier books, including Brilliant Blunders, from Darwin to Einstein. We're talking about his latest book, Why? What Makes Us Curious? Well, I have to say, my family had a bit of a giggle about this book. Why? They said, this is your book. It's mistitled, though. Everyone in my family tells me, and I don't remember this, from the time I was just the tiniest girl and could talk, I go, how come, how come, all day long? <laughs> so I guess how come with the question mark is is still available. But I, I was born curious. Um, are, are kids just born curious? I just happen to ask the questions more. Uh, all kids are curious. I mean, we all experience this thing that they keep all the time asking either why or how come or other questions. Uh, some people think that when they grow up, I mean, they lose their curiosity. It turns out from research that's actually not quite the case. What happens is that their um, desire for novelty and their willingness to take risks for novelty um, is, is higher in children, and that does decline somewhat with age. But, for example, the epistemic curiosity, that love of knowledge and wanting to learn, that actually stays fairly constant uh, across all ages. So the nature of curiosity somewhat changes uh, but it's not that uh, children completely lose their curiosity. Simply when they are very young, um, they really try to understand everything about cause and effect. They understand that everything they see is related to some cause. Uh, this is exactly what you ask, you know, how come or, or why. Um, and, and, and they try to understand that, and that's very natural because understanding cause and effect really helps them uh, cope with an environment. So that's a very important thing for young children. That ability to be able to ask throughout your life and recognize you're doing it, that it's that's a part of stimulating yourself. It's a part, uh, I think it feeds ultimately into your emotions and your, your sense of well-being. No question about this. I mean, curiosity is essential for us. I mean, you know, it really helps us understand the world around us. It, it helps us to uh, to um, be more em empathic with other people. It also, I mean, one of the things I, I write in the book, I, I coined this phrase, curiosity is the best remedy for fear. And I strongly mean that. What I mean by that is the following. You see, we are very often, we are fearful afraid of things that we don't know or don't understand. But when we are curious about them and we learn more about them and we understand them better, we are much less fearful. So curiosity really 
is, is the best remedy for fear. Now, let's get to some of the science. Some of the earliest science, of course, is Wilhelm Wundt and, and the Wundt curve. Tell us about that, when it happened, when he worked on that, and what it's about. So, yeah, so these, these are people already in the 19th century. So uh, the idea is the following. Uh, th there is a theory of curiosity that was developed, which is called the information gap theory. And basically what that theory says is that when you see something that basically doesn't quite agree with what you know, a sort of a gap is formed in your mind. And, and that gap is, is perceived as this unpleasant uh, situation, unpleasant state. And therefore you become curious because you want to get rid of this unpleasantness. Uh, indeed, like in a way like scratching an itch. Um, and, and Wundt, uh, this particular theory was, was proposed by uh, a still active person, George Lowenstein, uh, and, and it, but it followed in, in the footsteps of Wundt uh, about this curb because one of the things that, that happens as, as a part of this, this theory, the information gap theory, is that if you look at curiosity as a function of your knowledge, you get something that looks like an inverted U-shape, which means the following. When you know about something very, very little, you're not too curious about this because you don't really know what to be curious about. When you know about something a lot, you're also not very curious about this because you feel that you know what there needs to be known and, you know, the rest is not so interesting. The time when you get really curious is when you know something about a topic, but you know or feel that there is more to be known. That's when you become really curious. And that's this inverted U-shape which goes all the way back to wound. Now, if we're talking about recent recent work, I'm so struck by the difference in available technology to to measure anything or what you could how you can construct your uh, experiments for instance if we look at the Canadian psychologist Daniel Berline um, he's saying okay how many parts of the brain could be involved and it could be more than one part these were questions that were n not even answerable at all many years ago but now we're seeing that He's the person who uh, identified this this axis of curiosity, if you like. On one side, this perceptual curiosity, which is when we see something surprising or ambiguous. On the other side, this epistemic curiosity, which is this love of knowledge. And then on the other axis, he goes all the way from diversive curiosity, which is that thing that, uh, you know, you do toward off boredom, like, you know, t looking for text messages, and specific curiosity, which is, you know, curious about a particular piece of information. So he's the one who designed this sort of plane of curiosity. But he himself did not had available to him, you know, techniques such as functional MRI, uh, which we use today uh -huh. for, you know, studying the brain. So so these things only really happened in relatively recent years. I mean, the experiments were done, you know, in 2009 and, and following that. I mean, because these techniques are only available, like, for the past 20 years or so.
Well, I have to say that one that I like that you wrote about were the Caltech researchers, Min Jong Kang and Colin Camera and their team. Um, and they were using the fMRI to see if for they asked, I guess, 40 questions and people self-reported which which subjects were of interest to them. And then they see what their brains look like as they were being asked these questions to see if they could match it up. Right. So, so it's, they are they really experimented with epistemic curiosity, with this you know wanting to know things. So, so they posed to their their uh, participants uh, forty questions, uh, you know, th- questions uh, such as uh, uh, which musical instrument was invented so as it would sound like a human voice, which is the violin, by the way. Um, and and then, you know, ask them which questions they are really curious about. And then really they looked which parts of the brain uh, are uh, activated when people are curious like that. And, and that experiment is the one that showed uh, that epistemic curiosity, this love of knowledge, is associated with areas of the brain uh, that uh, are activated in anticipation of a reward, namely that we see the knowledge or the or the acquisition of knowledge, we see that as a reward. And so, this is really important for teachers. <laughs> you know, oh, you, you, you can say that again. They yes. have to strive uh, to create these high curiosity conditions. How do they do that? Right. So <laughs> there are various ways. I thought I'd and, ask you a hard question, Mario. <laughs> yeah, yes. There, there, there are various ways, and I, I do not pretend to know all the answers. Uh, but uh, let me just add that for teachers and students, this is even more important because what some of these experiments have shown is that memory is also enhanced when we are curious. And it is enhanced even not only about those things that we are curious about, but even incidental memory, you know, things that are memories that we do without really wanting is also enhanced. Namely, when people are curious, they somehow tend to remember even things that are not exactly related to the things that they are curious about. So this is why it's so important for education. Now, you asked, how do you make children curious and and so on. Um, So there are various ways. One is, of course, to ask questions. And it is good not to give immediately the answer, but rather to try to stimulate the children to think themselves of the answer. So, you know, you ask a question, the child answers something, you say, okay, well, let's see if that is correct. How would you test that? And so on. So, So that's one way of doing it. But there is a second way which I think is even more important, and that's the following. Let's suppose you want to teach children about, um, I don't know, the free fall acceleration on Earth uh, because you want to teach them science and you want to tell them that, you know, there is a force of gravity and, and objects accelerate towards Earth. Now, the children may not be that interested in this topic even though you think it's very important for them to know about this. So what do you do? You start with a topic that you know the children are curious about. For example, all small children almost, with no exception, are curious about dinosaurs. So you start with dinosaurs, and you teach them about dinosaurs, and they are really curious about this, so you tell them all kinds of things. And then you say, you know what? The dinosaurs, they all became extinct some 60 million years ago. 
I'm speaking with Dr. Mario Livio. His book is Why? What Makes Us Curious? We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Technation, Biotechnation, and Technation Health are available at iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Technation Health, faster computing and better algorithms make a difference for newborns in trouble. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with Dr. Mario Livio about his book, Why? What Makes Us Curious? So what do you do? You start with a topic that you know the children are curious about. For example, all small children almost, with no exception, are curious about dinosaurs. So you start with dinosaurs. And you teach them about dinosaurs. And they are really curious about this. So you tell them all kinds of things. And then you say... But you know what? The dinosaurs, they all became extinct some 60 million years ago. And you know why they became extinct? Because a large asteroid came from space and hit Earth. And you know why the asteroid came from space and hit Earth? Because of the Earth's gravity attracted that asteroid. And so it accelerated through the Earth's atmosphere and hit Earth. So you come to the subject that you wanted to teach through a subject that the children were already curious about to begin with. Bait and switch. I like it. <laughs> That's a good idea, Mario. I like it. <laughs> good. Um, I'm very interested in the role that digital information can be the agent through which uh, something very exciting could happen. And I want to use the example you talk about in the book of the Shoemaker-Levy 9 comet, which was very exciting when it was predicted and seen. But 
what you were looking at later is that it would that was predicted to be this collision with Jupiter, and everybody wanted to know whether you could see it. Well, you can't see it with your eyeball. You'd have to see it through digital information. So describe to people what it was you you were waiting for to see and what actually happened. So, so this was an extraordinarily exciting event, uh, and it happened uh, in 1994. There was this comet, which was called after two astronomers, the comet Shoemaker-Levy 9. Um, actually, one couple of astronomers and one <laughs> other astronomer, uh, because one was a husband and wife, the Shoemakers, and, and then there was Levy. Um, and, and this uh, comet was caught in orbit around uh, Jupiter, and uh, because of Jupiter's gravity, uh, the comet uh, broke into some two dozen pieces or so. In fact, 26 fragments were seen, um, and they were observed. And then, uh, you know, scientists did calculations about the orbits of these fragments, and it was found that these fragments were going to hit the atmosphere of Jupiter one by one. Uh, and that was supposed to happen in July of '94. But we had no idea whether we would actually see anything where, when it hits because we didn't have a good knowledge of the size of these fragments. And uh, computer simulations showed that if the size was smaller than about half a mile or so, uh, then these fragments would just be swallowed by Jupiter's atmosphere, you, you know, like a small pebble thrown into a pond uh, without seeing anything from Earth. We just didn't know whether we will see anything. And, you know, essentially all the telescopes on the ground in space, including Hubble, were directed uh, at uh, Jupiter to see what will be seen. So uh, scientists, you know, gathered and, and waited for when the first fragment was supposed to hit. And really till the very last minute, it wasn't clear whether anything will be seen, even with the Hubble Space Telescope. Well, what happened eventually is that it turned out that uh, much was seen. I mean, w what happened was we first saw a point of light, and then that point grew, and then uh, it, it looked a little bit like a mushroom, and that mushroom kind of then relaxed onto the surface. Uh, so basically, it, it almost looked like a nuclear mushroom because what happened was that uh, the fragment went into Jupiter, into the atmosphere, caused some sort of an explosion which brought material back out through the kind of hole that the fragment punched in the atmosphere, and that went up like a mushroom, and then that mushroom settled onto the atmosphere. And that's what happened with all those fragments as they hit, it turned out, and uh, eventually they even left because the material that came up uh, had a different color uh, and different composition. It, it was seen li like scars almost in the atmosphere of Jupiter where those things hit. And, and then it took months for those scars to disappear by all the motions within the atmosphere. And here you are, an astrophysicist. Were those telescope observation rooms, were they all jammed with you guys? The place where we were actually looking was not that large, and uh, computer screens were a little bit smaller and uh, less sophisticated in 1994. So there were, you know, maybe of order 20 people, and we were jammed because the, the room was small. Uh, 
looking at that screen. And when you first realized that you actually could see it, then what happened? Well, at that point, it became really exciting because these are rare, relatively rare events, and this was the first time we've seen, you know, in real time uh, of, of uh, you know, a comet fragment hitting the atmosphere of a planet. So we knew that we will learn all kinds of things about Jupiter, about the, the composition of its atmosphere, about motions in the atmosphere, about the fragments themselves, the comets, uh, you know, things related to the formation of the solar system. And uh, there was a whole uh, lot of science that was to be learned from these collisions. So you started out curious. You got your reward with the answer, and it generated a whole lot more curiosity. That's right. In fact, believe it or not, there are even some questions that even until today we don't know precisely the answer to from that collision. So you're still searching for all that. We're still curious about them. <laughs> exactly. That's the right answer. Mario, thank you so much. You're always welcome on Tech Nation. Please come back. See us again. My pleasure. My guest today is Dr. Mario Livio. His book is Why? What Makes Us Curious? It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Fifteen percent of newborns in the United States go immediately to intensive care. Half are preemies, and the other half are not. Dr. Stephen Kingsmore is the president and CEO of Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine. I asked him, how important is it to understand the genetic makeup of a newborn? Well, it depends, Moira. So a lot of kids are born perfectly healthy, and it's a joyous experience, and the baby goes home right on time, um, and suddenly you've got a new life in the family, and wow. Uh, but then the, about 15% of newborns will go from the delivery room to an intensive care unit. That's a lot, 15% of infants. And of that set of infants, some are born prematurely, probably about half, and so they just need to grow. Uh, but that other half, so about 7%, there's something going on. They might have a congenital anomaly, like congenital heart disease. Um, they may have other things going on. Um, these babies require urgent attention. Um, they require speed like any other area of medicine where there's high acuity. I mean, the things that people will be immediately aware of are things like the management of a heart attack or the management of a stroke or the management of bloodstream infection. And their physicians talk about the golden hours, that you have a couple of hours in which to implement the right treatment and if you do so, outcomes are good. And if you don't do so, outcomes are bad. Um, and so for many of these babies, they're in that same predicament. Uh, they're born. Nobody had suspected prior to delivery that the baby had a genetic disease. Believe it or not, there are 8,000 genetic diseases. 
and they affect 3 or 4% of the U.S. population. So in many of these babies, it's an emergency. It's a race to find which of the 8,000 does this baby have because until you know which they have, you're locked into treating them based on their symptoms. And the symptoms don't necessarily lead you in the right direction. Um, and so many of these babies, they're either uh, getting a sort of a, a, a trial of treatment while they wait for a diagnosis, or indeed they get misdiagnosed and get the wrong treatment. So we just felt that was wrong, and could we solve that problem for all 8,000 genetic diseases amongst all babies? Well, I found you <laughs> through through looking at actually advanced computation, a chip, which is called the Dragon Chip from Etico Genomics, that processes genomic data so fast, it analyzes it so fast, it's, it's amazing, which is not a number but a factor, but it's orders of magnitude faster in very specialized cases. And we had often talked that there had been a newborn experiment about how rapidly could they, with newborns, analyze uh you know, the whole genome, because it would, in cases where it was important. Um, obviously, this is just part of a whole string of technology that has to be put together. And it turns out you are the fellow they were talking about. Yes. So we have been um, on this journey now for probably five years. Um, our first world record was 48 hours, and that was in 2012. Um, Edico didn't exist back then. Um, and we were able to work with Illumina, who manufacture the sequencing instruments, uh, to set that record. And a big bottleneck then, we'd been able to shorten the actual decoding part of the genome, the chemistry side of the process. We'd been able to shorten that down, but we were really stuck on the computational part. Like and what it, is going on? Yes, well, the, the thing about a genome, a genome is 6.4 billion DNA letters. That's the equivalent of a book 600 feet tall, printed with letters 8.5 by 11. Um, and we decode that 40 times. And so computationally, decoding each of those from an image file and then comparing that to the reference and finding the 5 million variants that vary in you or I from what's called normal um, is a computational challenge. And it used to take a supercomputer about 24 hours. And so we had a 48-hour process, 24 hours to decode the genome chemically and 24 hours to compute it. And then in partnership with Illumina again and with Edico Genome, we were able to shorten that to 26 hours. And the actual computational piece we took down to 30 minutes, which is staggering to go from 24 hours to 30 but minutes. I was saying orders of magnitude. How could that be? Supercomputers are supposed to be the fastest, but this was talking a chip that really drove it down. Yes, exactly. And even more impressively to us was that it was a bit more accurate than the supercomputer-based methods. So we weren't um, getting speed at the expense of results which were not quite as accurate, which is very, very important for us. Now, what kind of results were you getting out that helped the newborns? So when we started out, we just thought, wow, this is a really cool thing. Let's do this because it's fun. You know, speed is fun. Um, but our first results we published in 2015, it was 35 babies, and 57% of those babies we gave a diagnosis to. And actually, I was on NPR, 
on um, the That's evening That's quite an news. honor, you know. Yes, indeed. <laughs> um, uh, whenever we publish those results, and uh, 57%, so roughly a half, we gave a diagnosis that they had one specific genetic disease. And in two-thirds of those babies, it changed how they were treated. Now, since then, we've transferred all of that technology over to our hospital here at Ready Children's uh, in San Diego. And we've been able to scale it up massively uh, in partnership with Illumina and with Edico Genome. And over the last nine months, we've uh, done this for 100 babies in our hospital in San Diego. And we're still seeing the same things, amazing things. So here, um, about four out of 10, 40% get a diagnosis. Um, our fastest locally is 37 hours. Um, we have about five cases. We've done it in less than 48 hours. But 80% of those babies, it changes how they're treated. That's staggering. So these are babies who are being managed uh, the best that is possible, given all of the excellence in U.S. healthcare, by expert neonatologists, and eight out of ten times, a test result resulted in them changing course and giving the baby a different therapy, sometimes saving their life, sometimes giving a better outcome, but the baby avoided uh, major long-term morbidity, and sometimes not so significant, but still um, much more impressive. Um, and, and if you think about this, mum and dad are locked into what we call a diagnostic odyssey. And so they're just waiting, waiting, waiting. They're not sure what's going on. Their doctors are scrambling to make a diagnosis. There's a race against the clock. And um, this whole idea of making a diagnosis, even if it doesn't change the management, it gives the parents an answer. They know the waiting is over. They know their baby's going to get the best care available. And doctors are able to sit down with them and talk about prognosis, talk about what the future will look like. And they just can't do that with any type of authority in the absence of a clear diagnosis. Many of these genetic conditions actually don't manifest until later. So it's possible then to diagnose them earlier and therefore intervene earlier? It is. Now, we are focused on acutely ill babies. So these babies all have symptoms. Um, so we're focusing on that subset. Um, they're the ones who are clearly today in the U.S. healthcare system at the greatest need. Um, they are a race against the clock. They're in an intensive care unit. Um, they are getting everything possible, um, things like extracorporeal membrane oxygenation where you bypass the heart or give supplement to the heart's function to keep the baby alive. Um, some of these therapies cost $20,000 a day. And so they really are a special case. And in these babies, we're trying to accelerate the diagnosis. Now, some of these babies will wait today in absence of this technology for months or even years to receive a diagnosis. There's a second class of babies that you're exactly right about who don't manifest the symptoms at birth and who then later develop them. And there's also a need for them to have a screening tool to pick them up at birth. We're working on that as well. That's a tougher question, though, because you're never sure what you're looking for because they don't have symptoms yet. So that's a really tough one to solve. But our first focus is on the babies in intensive care units. There we know when we're done. All right, now you're putting this technology together. This is not off the shelf, if you will. It's right. like everybody is working together to do that. 
But you have a mandate that you've imposed on yourself to take this worldwide. How are you going to do that? Well, yes. So that's what I came to San Diego to do. So uh, our institute was founded in 2014. Uh, a gentleman called Ernest Rady and his wife Evelyn gave us $120 million and said, go change the world with genomes. Um, and so I was recruited with this vision to make this technology that we have uh, developed um, worldwide to bring it to every baby in need. And that resonated with our hospital. We're the largest children's hospital in California, so we have a huge need here in San Diego County with three million people. Um, and so what I've done over the last 18 months is firstly to go around the world and select the dream team. You know, it's like um, setting up a new MBA team and you have unlimited budget and you can just go cherry pick the very best. Warren Buffett, would you please come? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I would very much like to hear from Mr. Buffett. <laughs> um, we're actually going to put this technology in Omaha, Nebraska at two hospitals there over the next six months. So um, that's a very pertinent point you made. Uh, that was not staged either. So no, we didn't we discuss go. that. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, so we have the Dream Team uh, in partnership with four biotechnology companies. We now feel we have a robust technical solution, um, and we are now implementing this. We've already implemented it in our hospital. Um, just yesterday, we announced that we're moving it into Orange County, uh, which is sort of the next big children's hospital up the coast. And over the next year, we're going to be introducing this to children's hospitals, about a dozen or so uh, around the country, from Miami to Colorado to Minneapolis. Um, we are um, talking to the big children's hospitals who look like our hospital uh, in a way to bring this technology to them. You said you, you broke a record. You yes. held a record. Not just any record. It was a, a Guinness World Record. It was. Now you're looking to break it again. Yes, we are. So um, we set the Guinness World Record a year ago in October, uh, and that was 26 hours. So just to put that in, in context, that's 26 hours from a mum or dad saying, yes, I agree that my baby's genome can be decoded in order to give us a diagnosis through making a phone call back to the neonatologist, the physician treating that baby, saying we have a provisional diagnosis. We've, we've, we think we've nailed it, and we're calling you up so that you can change the management. So 26 hours. Now, to put that in perspective, the first genome uh, took about 13 years to decode. <laughs> That's not going to work for a baby. And if uh, a genome-type test is ordered uh, as a standard test, it takes about 90 days to come back. And so clearly either the baby has gone home and recovered, or the baby's died, or the baby's still in the intensive care unit and is really pretty critically ill. That's not going to work. And so to shorten this down to about a day or two days is something that works for the healthcare system. That puts it on a par with other high complexity tests that neonatologists will do in babies to understand What's the right treatment to give this baby? So it's really focused on treatment. You know, some of these babies require surgeries. So what's the right surgery? Uh, you certainly don't want to do an unnecessary surgery or a wrong surgery on a baby because you didn't have 
the definitive diagnosis. The same with medications. For many genetic diseases, there are highly specific therapies that can prevent symptoms or even uh, manage the disease. Um, but you're not going to give those without a diagnosis. Some of them are very expensive. And these diseases are so rare that they're never at the top of your differential diagnosis list. You know, they're number 374 on the list. And so it's not like you're going to automatically dial into those for most of these babies. So right now your record is 26. What's yes. your next goal? Well, we um, are really excited because the technologies continue to improve and our expertise continues to get better. And so we are tentatively thinking that we can break our world record again. Uh, we'd like to be the Michael Phelps of genome sequencing, uh, but with only one Guinness world record, we have a long way to go. <laughs> um, but Illumina introduced a new genome sequencing instrument, the NovaSeq, uh, at the start of this year. We will get delivery on our NovaSeq, our first one, this month and we are talking with them and Edico and other companies Fabric Genomics about how we can put together the various pieces that we need in a line and then go ahead and bring that time down to certainly less than a day so that's sort of the magic idea is can we do it in in the same day and that fits well with how medicine's practiced. You know, doctors are on call, and typically they're on call in an intensive care unit for a 24-hour period. So wouldn't it be nice if they can get an answer back before they check out and a new set of doctors checks in? That would kind of be our dream. That would be the ideal scenario. Now, these babies are so fragile. What kind of material do you have to take from the babies to do a whole genome? Well, it's a blood sample. And in a little baby, it's a very small blood sample. Um, so it's a few drops of blood. Um, and that's pretty simple. Um, and for most of these babies, they already have um, various lines in them um, so that they're getting blood products or other drugs intravenously and they're getting other blood tests done. And so it's not as invasive as it might seem that this is happening um, on an ongoing basis. Um, so a blood sample is what we use currently, but we're also looking at using a cheek swab because there are the odd baby, there is the odd baby in whom it's really tough to get blood. And in fact, many of the babies are so ill that they're being given blood products. And so their blood is not just their blood, it's the blood of a donor as well. And obviously that can be um, confusing if you're going to decode the genome. Um, and so we're looking at other things as well. Also, we need mum and dad. In an ideal world, we decode mum's genome, dad's genome, and baby's genome because we can look for uh, variants or mutations that are inherited from either mum or dad or that have occurred early in the development of the baby and not present to mum or dad. So that can be hugely useful. And one of the really weird things that we found is that in general, dads hate needles. What? Mums, mums seem to be okay with the idea of giving birth. a sample of blood. <laughs> yes, do anything. <laughs> but dads, dads run from the room if you produce a needle, and so for dads, we think we might need to use a cheek swab. Also, something else that we discussed earlier was that you were. Uh, it's like yes, we want it fast, fast, fast. But as you said, you know, the faster you go, 
you really might give up some accuracy, and we can't have that. So there is a push-pull here. Absolutely there is. So um, one really important thing is that mom and dad need to give permission, consent for this test to be performed. And that is a weighty decision for a mom and a dad. And obviously, mom has just given birth, uh, and dad is out of his mind because the baby's in an intensive care unit. And so this is a family who are not in a cool, calm, collected uh, mindset and able to process that. And so we don't want to rush that process. We really need to walk through with them um, the potential that we might find something that they don't want to find out about uh, and what the implications might be for their baby and have walked through that with them. So that part of the process is something that can't be hurried. And in fact, sometimes it takes a week for us to get consent from mum and dad because they really just need to work through this. Um, so there's that issue. And then there's the issue that you don't want to be so fast that you're taking shortcuts. Um, you want to make sure that your processes have very high accuracy, very high sensitivity, and then that there's a real degree of thoughtfulness in terms of, is this the right diagnosis? And are the treatment suggestions that we're making to the clinical team appropriate? And in some cases, this is very black and white. I would say at least half of the time, it's really black and white. But then there's the other half where it's fairly gray. And often in those cases, we need to call up national experts and say, we think we have a new case of this, but it looks unusual. What do you think? Uh, and sometimes we need to con convene a team of clinicians um, and get a consensus amongst them. Um, and so in an ideal world with the simplest diagnoses, we can do it just like that. But in these other cases, necessarily it's a process that we need to work through because our goal here is not really to break records. Our goal is to improve the outcome for each individual baby. Dr. Kingsmore, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll come My back and see us again. Thank you. Thanks, Maura. Dr. Stephen Kingsmore is the president and CEO of Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine. More information is available at radygenomics.com. That's Rady, R-A-D-Y, radygenomics.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Maury Rickett. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.